Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Today we're going to finish up our series, Fixed Marriage. Two weeks ago, Pastor Andrew kicked off the series by leading us through Ephesians chapter 5. And he challenged us not to read those verses, applying them to our spouses and what they should do, but rather to read them recognizing how they apply to us personally, what we should do with those verses and how we're supposed to act those out. And and he said when we do, we will submit our will for our spouse. And, And Jesus set that example when he died to his will, when he died to his wants, his preferences for us. And in marriage, we've got to learn to do the same thing. Not my will, but yours. And then last week, we looked at the scriptural way to fix your spouse. What do you do when you are trying your best, but your spouse isn't? You're trying to make it work, but your spouse is not. And we looked at the marriage of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. And Hosea, I told you, is a picture of God. Your spouse, when they see you, they should see the image of God. When they look at you, they need to see God's grace, God's mercy. And Hosea, like God, exemplified grace in his marriage. And so the first week was about fixed me. Fixed me. The second week was about fixed he or fixed she. And today is about fixed we. Fixed we. There was a woman who awoke during the night to find that her husband was not in bed. And, and so she put on her robe and, and she went downstairs to see if she could find him. And she found him. He was sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee in his hand. And he was just, just staring at the wall in front of him. And he just appeared to be in deep thought, just holding his cup of coffee, staring at the wall. And, and, and that's when she saw him reach up and just wipe a tear away from his eye. And she said, honey, what's the matter? Why, why are you down here at this time of night by yourself. He said, do you remember 20 years ago when we were dating and you were only 16 years old? She said, yes, I I remember. He said, do you remember when your father caught us kissing in the back seat of my car? She said, of course I do. He said, do you remember when he shoved that shotgun in my face? And he said, Either you'll marry my daughter or you'll spend 20 years in jail. She says, oh yeah, I remember. And he wiped another tear from his eye and said, you know, today I would have gotten out. (laughs) Some of the men in the room right now, you're just wiping away that tear. (laughs) Realizing if I only had the chance. I thought thought that I was prepared for marriage. I really did. I thought I knew it all. I was 20 years old. I thought I knew it all. I thought, thought, man, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for marriage. I was wrong. I was wrong. I wasn't ready for marriage. There are some things that still don't make sense to me. Mysteries in marriage. Anybody else? You have mysteries? I mean, you're still scratching your head trying to figure them out, figure him out, figure her out. I mean, it's tough. One of those mysteries to me that I just can't figure out is like, why do we have so many pillows on our bed? We only use two. Why do we have 10 pillows? Every night we have to do the same thing. We have to remove pillows from the bed, put them in a stack somewhere, 
only for them to go back on the bed the next day. It's a mystery. I don't get it. Another mystery to me is how in the world does my wife still have hair on her head? With all the hair that comes out in the shower or all the hair that's on the bathroom floor, I would not expect her to have any hair on her head. It's a mystery to me. And finally, this last mystery to me is why is it so important for me to remember her birthday, but it's a sin for me to remember her age? <laughs> that's, that's a mystery. Shouldn't they just go hand in hand? I mean, it's a mystery, I tell you. And the, the Apostle Paul agreed with me. Listen to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul acknowledged that marriage is a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. Think about it. Two people becoming one. That's hard to comprehend. I mean, she loves a full house, but he likes his peace and quiet. He, he likes to spend money, but she likes to save. She likes to go to the beach. He prefers the mountains. That's actually us. He likes the walking dead. She likes The Bachelor. <laughs> Unless you're Josh and Melody Bryant, and they both like The Bachelor. It's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I don't get it. I don't get it. But Josh, you are setting the example for the rest of the men to follow, two becoming one, even in their TV shows. As difficult as this is, Paul goes on to say that marriage between a man and a woman is not necessarily the, the mystery that he was referring to. Even though he uses that chapter to teach us how to be in marriage, the roles that are played, he makes sure that you understand that the mystery that he's referring to is about the relationship between Christ and the church. And he says, this is such a mystery. And I get it. I, I know what he's talking about because it's so hard for unbelievers to fathom the love and the commitment that Jesus has for humanity. It's hard for them to understand that. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The world doesn't get it. The world does not understand God's desire for us. The world does not not, they do not comprehend how, how God could love us so much. So to display this commitment and love to the world, God chose the model of marriage between a woman and a man. And when God refers to his relationship with us, he likens it to marriage. Ephesians 5 and 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You, you listen to Isaiah 54 and 5, and it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Revelation 21 and 9, one of the seven angels said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then Revelation 21 and 2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
God could have chosen any other institution or relationship in the world to model his love for us. But when he talks about his relationship with humanity, he chose to use the metaphor of marriage. God longs for our relationship with him to be eternal. And if you want something to last, if you want it to last forever, then you treat it differently. You shield it. You protect it. You never abuse it. You don't expose it to the elements. No, you protect it. And this brings me to my concern is that marriage is struggling in America. It used to be the very foundational thing, something we could count on, stability. But today, marriage is struggling in America. Now, now I want to put this out there before I go any farther with this, because there's no doubt in just a few moments, I'm probably going to step on some toes in the room, but you need to understand something. We've all made mistakes in marriage. We've all made, there's no one person in this room that has gotten it all right. We've all made our fair share of mistakes in marriage, every one of us. Those of us who have been married or we're married now, we've made our mistakes. I, I told you last week, it was only by the grace of God that Mandy and I didn't end up getting divorced. We've all made our mistakes. But marriage is no longer protected. America no longer values marriage, and, and God designed marriage to be lasting. Divorce rates are rising. Marriage rates are falling. More and more couples are living together and having kids without marrying, without commitment. And society wonders if marriage really is necessary anymore. Is marriage truly necessary we're sending mixed signals to the world. And it starts right here in the church. Because when it comes to the sanctity of marriage, we as Christians, we failed. Listen to me. Now, I know this is going to be convicting for some, but I want you to understand this is where we're at. Malachi 2 and 16 says, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful. Matthew 19 and 9, Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then in Mark 10 and 12, he also said, And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It saddens me to report to you that the divorce rate among Christians is the same as the divorce rate among non-Christians. 50% of the people outside of the church end up in divorce. 50% of the people inside the church end in divorce. 50% of our marriages are failing. And we treat marriage as if we created it, like it was our idea to begin with. Listen, the day that you decided that you wanted to get married, you, you didn't come up with that on your own. Marriage is not your idea. And we decide in our minds that, 
you know, what verses that we want to hold on to and what verses we want to fight for. And we disregard those that we don't want to apply to our lives. But church, we can't do that. And because of that, we've almost lost our right to defend marriage. Because we sound like a bunch of hypocrites to the world. And we've almost lost our right to defend it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Christians were in an uproar when the Supreme Court redefined marriage. Listen, I've got my convictions. I know what God's Word says. I know how I feel about that. But I'll submit to you that Christians, Christians have also redefined marriage. We don't get to walk away just because we're not compatible anymore. And we've adopted this phrase on the divorce documents of irreconcilable differences. And it's our mantra for divorce. And it covers a multitude of sin. And we put that on the divorce papers saying, that, that's, that's our way out. That, that's, and I'm telling you, in this whole process, our example for others to follow, it, it's got to improve. It's got to get better. No longer are Christians defining what marriage should look like. We're redefining biblical standards and we're walking away. And church, if you want to impact this world with the good news of Christ, then I'm telling you, you must go and fix your marriage and show the world what real grace and what real mercy looks like. As Christians, every aspect of our lives should cause people to desire a relationship with God. And that includes our marriages, church. Don't, don't think that that, that that is not included in the process of being evangelists and, and ambassadors for his kingdom. We are called to paint such an attractive picture of marriage that it causes others to long for the coming marriage of humanity to Christ. We are supposed to paint that picture. And that means that our marriages must display the love of Christ, the humility of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the endurance of Christ. That's what we are supposed to be displaying to the world. So, so let me say this as plain as I possibly can. And some of you, you're not going to like this. But your marriage does not exist just for your happiness and your satisfaction. And that's what you've convinced yourself of. And that's why when you're no longer satisfied and you're no longer happy, you freely walk away. Your marriage does not exist just for your happiness and your satisfaction. Your marriage exists to display the gospel to the world. It's why he chose that metaphor to talk about his relationship with us, it's a marriage. But I can assure you of this. If your marriage displays love, humility, grace, mercy, forgiveness, sacrifice, endurance, then I can assure you your marriage will be happy and you will find satisfaction. You see, some of us, we don't understand that if you are married, your greatest evangelistic tool is your marriage. Think about it. Think about all of the people that your marriage has the ability to impact. 
Everyone who comes into contact with your marriage has the opportunity to see Jesus. Even if they never see your spouse, meet your spouse, they all have, they all have the opportunity to encounter Jesus by, by what you present about your marriage, your friends, your co-workers, your extended family, the cashier at Walmart, the waiter at Olive Garden, even your children. Think about that. Your children will have an understanding of God by the way that you treat your spouse and the love that you are willing to put on display for your spouse and the mercy and the grace that you're willing to expend, extend to your spouse. Your children see that. And your marriage is what God wants to use to create a desire in others for him. If you will, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 happens on the night that Jesus is arrested. This is his, his last pep talk to his disciples. This is it. When this speech ends, he's going to be arrested, tried, crucified. And so what he says here, it matters. So listen to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. As I told you last week, in biblical times, parents had a big role in securing a spouse for their children. The father of a young single man would look around for a suitable girl, and upon finding one, he would go to her parents' house to ask for her hand in marriage to his son. And there, there would be some financial negotiating, and once they finally settled on an appropriate dowry, that the betrothal would take place. Now, the betrothal was the engagement. And, and although the betrothal was legally binding, you have to realize that it's much more serious than present-day engagements. But just because it was legally binding, it did not mean that the marriage was consummated on that day. No, the marriage would not be consummated until the wedding day. But it was so serious, this engagement was so serious that, that when the betrothal was sealed, the prospective groom, or as the Bible calls him, the bridegroom, the groom would tell his bride these words. He would say, I go to prepare a place for you. That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. In one of the most important conversations of Christianity, I go to prepare a place for you. The groom would say that to his bride-to-be, and then the groom would spend the next several months, maybe even up to a year, providing a little addition to his dad's house where he and his wife would eventually live. And then he would return back to her house, and, and, and it would be often in the middle of the night to surprise his bride and take her home. Surprise! <laughs> say bye. Now here's the thing. Church, our groom is going to return. Amen. We are the bride of Christ. And our groom is going to return. There's going to be a marriage. There's going 
to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a celebration. One day the bride of Christ is going to be married to Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's hard for us to comprehend it, I know, but this is the metaphor that he chose to use. We have the opportunity now to display his love to humanity through our marriages. Understanding that his love is a mystery to them. They don't get it. And our lives and our marriages must explain his love to them. There's a responsibility on your marriage. And it's more than just to meet your needs. It's more than just to bring satisfaction to you. It's to display God's love to humanity. Before couples go through premarital counseling with me or one of our staff members, each spouse-to-be has to answer a questionnaire that, that we email to them and, and then they send it back to us. They fill it out separately. The groom-to-be and the bride-to-be, they fill them out separately and send them back, kind of giving me a basis for, for which direction our, our counseling sessions need to go in. And, and one of the questions on that questionnaire it's one of my favorite questions. I love when I get to this question and, and preparing for my time with them. It says, name a couple that you admire as a model couple. What marriage do you look up to? Now, there's also the follow-up question of, you know, what marriage would you not like to be like? It's tough. It's tough. But I love reading that. Because the, the answers, what what. What couple do you look up to? What marriage models the way for you? The answers vary from parents to grandparents. Of course, the other question sometimes is their parents and grandparents too, but we, we're not focusing on that. Sometimes they'll write down that they admire the marriage of their friends. They look up to those marriages. And, and every once in a while, they might even list me and Mandy as one of those couples that they look up to. And I just give them extra points when they do that. I mean, it's, it's good. But what blesses me is that sometimes it's you. It's confidential, so I can't tell you. But sometimes they look up to you and your marriage. Are you giving them something to look up to? When they look at your marriage, is it a model marriage? Not perfect, but is it striving to please God? Is it, is it an example of God's mercy, grace, his love, his understanding, his forgiveness? Is that what your marriage is? If God chose marriage to model his love to the world, what does your marriage tell them? Because if there's a lot of control in your marriage, then you're saying God is a dictator. If there's manipulation, then you're saying God is a deceiver. If there's infidelity, you're saying God is a cheater. If there's divorce, you're telling them when the going gets tough, God will leave you and God will forsake you. That's what you're saying through your marriage. And church, it's time that we start feeling the weight of the responsibility of our marriages. They're the greatest evangelistic tool that we had. The greatest evangelistic tool that we have. Just this week, Mandy and I were, were at a conference down in Orlando and 
couple that we've, we've met a few times down at these seminars, but we've, we've never been out to dinner with them. The conversations have been no more than two minutes. And we walk outside and we're standing outside and, and he says, can I ask you something? The husband said, can I ask you something? I said, sure. And the four of us are standing there and he said, what makes your marriage so happy? What's the success of your marriage? And it caught me off guard. I was like, uh... She cooked good. (laughs) And so we sit there and we talk for just a few moments and we left. Mandy and I, you know, went out to dinner, went to the hotel and stuff. And the next day he came back to us and he said, my wife just found out that this Friday she's going to be receiving divorce papers from me. I told Mandy, I said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But it's like sometimes troubled marriages just flock to us for some reason. 90% of my counseling is marriage counseling. And I looked at him and I said, you need to go talk with your wife. And if she's willing, we need to meet. The four of us need to meet. And I told Mandy when we sat down at the table ready to take notes on the next seminar, I, I told her, I said, if... They want to go to dinner tonight. We're changing our plans and we're going to dinner. They didn't and we're still waiting to hear from them. But they saw something. I'm not saying this so that you'll you'll look at me and say, man, how great are you? But man, I'm telling you, Mandy and I, we take our marriage seriously. And sometimes we laugh at it. But we take it seriously. We are called to model Jesus to the world. I'll never forget the day. August 12th, 1995. I was standing in a back room in a tuxedo. I was scared to death. I was 20 years old. You ever experienced cold feet? Mandy had them too. And I'm standing there realizing I'm about to commit my life to the same person for the rest of our lives and I'm only 20 years old. And I thought, her dad would kill me if I walk away right now. My family will kill me. And I walked out on that stage with my dad, who was the the minister performing the wedding ceremony. And I walked out and I looked. And there were over 500 people there to witness our marriage. And I thought, oh, crap. Some of them just showed up because it was the first wedding in the new sanctuary. I'm convinced of that. (laughs) Brand new sanctuary. They showed up. They didn't even know us. They were just, hey, we may have our wedding here. Let's go, you know. I was scared. My my legs were shaking. I remember my, my hands being sweaty. I'm thinking, what am I doing? And then the doors opened. That's what I saw. 
she was the most beautiful woman in the whole church. And I couldn't see my groomsmen. I couldn't see the bridesmaids. I couldn't see my dad, the pastor. I couldn't see 500 other people. All I could see was her walking down that aisle. And all I could think was, as soon as we say I do, she's mine and I'm hers. I wasn't nervous anymore. It was just, that's going to be mine. Beautiful. Obviously, I was attracted to that. I'll tell you what I actually thought. I, I said, tonight I get to be with that. And tomorrow night. And the night after that. And very quickly I realized how naive I was. And she walked down that aisle and I didn't want anything else but her and here's what I'm afraid of I'm afraid that we're creating the bride of Christ to be unattractive to the world imagine if Mandy would have walked through that door in jogging pants, a flannel shirt no makeup, her hair all messed up I'm out of here I'm going to fake a heart attack. They get me to the hospital. I'm leaving through the back door of the emergency room. I, that's not, I don't want to marry that. But that's what we're presenting when we, when we treat marriage like it's not sacred, like it's not holy. When we don't realize the impact that our marriages can have on this world, if we will just use them the way they're meant to be used and present Christ through our marriages. If we do that, the world says, I want that. That's attractive to me. I want to be a part of that. But I'm afraid that some of our marriages look more like the bride of Frankenstein than they do the bride of Christ. And they want nothing to do with that. And it's our job. Point them to heaven through our marriages because that's what he chose to display his love for us. So you better learn to forgive. You better learn to extend grace, to be merciful, long-suffering, patient, kind, to learn the endurance of Christ. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.